You are listening to a podcast from The National. The big stories in business this week centered on Abu Dhabi National Oil Company selling stakes in its refining unit and on Saudi Arabia, where the kingdom unveiled its huge new industrial strategy to investors from around the world. In both cases, big numbers were the order of the day. This is the Business Extra podcast. My name's Chris Nelson, and today I'm joined by The National's energy reporter, Jennifer Nana, and company's correspondent, Samad Khan, to discuss those topics. Later, I talk to Simon Allison, the chairman of the international hotel owners, Hoftel, ahead of a major hospitality summit in Abu Dhabi, about the changing face of the global and regional hotel industry. But first, Adnok and Saudi Arabia. Uh, welcome, Jennifer, and uh, welcome, Samad. Thank you. Thank you. Jennifer, um, let's uh, start with uh, the Adnoc news. Um, Adnoc awarded ENI and OMV um, stakes in its refining unit, uh, Adnoc Refining, um, and also established a trading joint venture with both companies. Um, this is part of its drive to become an integrated energy player. Um, what, what was the deal? What were the specifics of the deal announced? Abu Dhabi National Oil Company has had an interesting start to the year. They've started awarding um, uh, firms uh, concession blocks from their ongoing licensing round. So ENI, along with a Thai company, was one of the first to win two blocks um, as part of the licensing round bid. And a few weeks later, it was announced that ENI, um, an Italian energy company, and OMV, which is an Austrian energy company, uh, were awarded 20 and 15% stakes in Adnoc's refining unit, Adnoc Refining, which the company uh, says is valued at 19.3 billion, which is a huge amount. And it's mm. one of the biggest transactions in regional uh, downstream industry. And it shows how seriously Adnoc takes its downstream strategy. So if we take a step back in May last year, they announced their downstream strategy and said they would they would invest uh, 165 billion dirhams over the next five years with international partners. So this is the first of such investments that we're seeing. Um, and along with, you know, the refining, um, with, the, with, the, with the sale of the stakes in the, refine, in the refining unit, they've also established um, a trading unit for the products that will come from the refinery. So a uh, few of the products from the refinery, LPG, that's liquefied petroleum gas, naphtha, gasoline, jet fuel, gas oil, base oils and, and also propylene for which acts as a feedstock for petrochemicals, uh, 70% of these products will be traded uh, by, the, by the JV established by these companies and 30% will be for the domestic market. Right. So um, the 70% that's uh, not for domestic, uh, where will that uh, likely to be um, marketed? I think they're looking at markets in Africa Asia, Europe, but mostly Asia. Mm. Um, also, Adnoc has, uh, they, they have an, an international downstream unit established, Adnoc International, looking at overseas downstream opportunities. They're also looking at overseas um, uh, integrated chemical and uh, refining opportunities. But th the demand from Asia is growing. So whether they're in Asia as investors or whether they're looking to sell to Asia, that is their primary destination, mm -hmm. but they're also looking at increasing demand in Africa and, and in Europe. And the, and the tie-up with um, ENI and OMV, pres mm -hmm. presumably they have established presences in in those areas that they can that uh, are not refining can can utilize. 
ENI is interesting because they've they're primarily an, an upstream player. They've seen a tremendous amount of success in uh, the Middle East and North Africa. They discovered Zohar in Egypt, and the start of the year has been very good for ENI. They won concession blocks uh, in Abu Dhabi, and they've also won uh, uh, licensing. Uh, one blocks in Oman and in Sharjah's first ever licensing round. So they've always been an upstream player. So I think the strategy and the value add for ENI is to to move downstream. So this uh, transaction will actually add 35%, will increase um, ENI's exposure to downstream by 35%. Um, and I think that that's, that's the way, you know, international oil companies are looking to grow. And for a player like ENI, which has seen success upstream, it's it's only natural that they would look to go downstream and maybe even grow further, uh, you know, al- along the value chain. Mm-hmm. And and um, Adnock has ambitions to, to build the world's largest integrated refining uh, yes. chemicals complex by 2025 in... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's western region of Ruiz. Um At the moment, it's got a refining capacity of uh, just over 900,000, 922,000 barrels uh, per day, which is already the world's fourth biggest mm-hmm. single site refinery. What's what's the um, what what would after the development of the six hundred uh, BPD refinery? Wh- where would that place the company uh, in that in that sort of single site refinery list? It'll be on top of the world. So currently, the biggest uh, refining uh, into the, the biggest refinery in the world is in Jamnagar in India. It's a 1.24 million barrel per day capacity uh, facility. Uh, so with the addition of the 600,000 um, 600, um, BPD refinery, um, Adnox's capacity will be 1.5. And this they're hoping to accomplish by 2025, which is also the timeline they have for the development of um, you know, a, a, comp- a, der- a derivatives and um, manufacturing unit within Ruiz, w- which is being developed as a refining and also as a, as an as a petrochemicals hub. So it's it's the largest of its kind. Uh, you know, re- refinery towns are not being built anymore. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're we're seeing a, a large scale, full scale development. So it's 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 absolutely massive. And I think uh, this deal with um, and another interesting point here is. Uh, Adnoc has retained 65% stake in Adnoc refining, mm-hmm. um, so 35%, 20, and and uh, and, 15. and and 15 between ENI and OMV. In the upstream sector, we've seen Adnoc traditionally retain 60%, um, with the remaining 40%. Um, divided between various international partners. So there is a chance that, you know, we could see one more partner join in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's just common sense that it could be some a player from the East. But if, if you look at similar partnerships that we've seen upstream, where you've seen a European partners and one partner from one of the markets that they engage in. So I think we, we can expect more deals mm-hmm. coming this way. And uh, how much um, uh, are the stake sales uh, likely to raise, do you think, uh, obviously, if they're, um, if they're completed successfully? Uh, proceeds from the, st- from the sale of the stakes are estimated to be $5.8 billion, and uh, they're, they're subject to completion adjustments, uh, which is, again, um, a massive amount uh, for, for ADNOC. Um, it is it is a very big number, and um, Samad, talking of big numbers, uh, you uh, have been um, in the in uh, Saudi Arabia uh, uh, covering the uh, new industrial strategy that was uh, announced there. What kind of numbers were were we talking about uh, that you came across there? 
Yes, uh, Chris, uh, big numbers, really big, big numbers. Uh, Saudi Arabia is, is planning to spend uh, 100 billion riyals, which is uh, uh, which they want to, uh, which is basically part of their uh, massive industrial strategy. It's called the National Industrial Development and Logistics Program, mm-hmm. and it covers 42 initiatives. Uh, the basic aim is to is to boost their mining, logistics, energy mostly renewable energy and industries. And uh, the total allocation for these projects is, is uh, 200 billion riyals. But in 2019 and 2020, uh, the government plans to spend about 100 billion riyals. Uh, it, was a, it was a big, big show. Uh, it was uh, a gathering of uh, uh, global investors, uh, regional investors like uh, DP World, uh, and some of the sovereign wealth funds, and uh, a lot of uh, local companies uh, were present there as well, including your Aramcos, your Almarais, and uh, and the rest of them. And it's it's all it it's, uh, comes as as a as a major sort of um, part of uh, uh, the push to achieve Vision Twenty Thirty, isn't it? Yes, Medlib uh, uh, is is basically uh, one of the thirteen pillars of. Uh, and the aim uh, basically is to attract uh, about 1.6 trillion riyals of investments uh, in these four sectors by 2023. Uh, government estimates that it's going to create about 1.6 million jobs, which is really high on, on Vision 2030 uh, agenda as well. And like I said, there are 42 initiatives that they are, uh, that they are launching. And uh, on, on, on the launch day, uh, of this industrial strategy, Saudi Arabia basically signed 37 new agreements, uh, which are worth uh, 53 billion dollars. So yes, big numbers there. And um, uh, deals also included uh, um, one with uh, Dubai's DP World um, for a, uh, to build and operate a container terminal at Saudi Arabia's Jeddah. Is it does that mark uh, a new move for DP World uh, into into Saudi Arabia? is already present in uh, in Saudi Arabia uh, but this one is a is a is a big deal because uh, it's uh, uh, it's it basically includes uh, uh, building and transferring a container terminal at Jeddah Islamic port uh, which is uh, which is a big opportunity for for the people to consolidate its uh, its position in uh, in Saudi Arabia but the bigger deal is uh, is is, uh, is the agreement between Saudi Aramco uh, which is the biggest oil-producing company in the world, and uh, Saudi Basic Industries Corporation, or, or Saudi as they know mm-hmm. it, uh, is uh, they tied up and they have agreed to take forward uh, oil to chemical plant in the kingdom, in Jebel, which is, uh, there are different numbers on, on the cost from, from 20 billion to 40 billion. Uh, we don't have uh, the exact number on the deal, but the, the plant is going ahead, and, and this is really, really important because mm-hmm. they have moved on from... Uh, the front-end engineering uh, studies to now the feasibility, which which is the right direction for the project to have. Um, as you say, one of the the, uh, the the big pillars of of the deal with the mining sector, um, obviously running alongside uh, oil and petrochemicals. But um, can you give us a bit of background as to what actually are they? Uh, is what do you mine in Saudi Arabia? 
uh, among the mining projects, uh, uh, there were uh, about more than 70 deals that were offered to, to global investors. And within the mining uh, sectors, projects uh, uh, worth about $28 billion, uh, including the integrated uh, steel plants and uh, investments uh, into uh, gold and iron ore and, and other uh, uh, geological surveys were uh, were were offered to the uh, investors, and uh, Saudi Arabia has basically invested about 40 billion in mining over the recent years in partnership with the uh, with the private sector. And currently, the industry contributes uh, about 70 billion dollars uh, uh, to the to the Saudi economy. Mm. It is one of the biggest sellers uh, after oil. They want to include uh, this as the as the second most important pillar. That is going to contribute to to the GDP. That course, at least is the ambition. Yeah, and of course, um, it's all part of the uh, you know the long term um, uh, vision and aim, which is not unique to Saudi, of course, uh, of of winning the kingdom off oil. And um, what it also, I I guess, will will add to is is the creation of jobs in the country. Um, I I believe that um, it's estimated that private sector jobs will rise by two times to 3.1 million um, by 2030. Uh, what, what sort of what sort of part of, of uh, that figure do you think this uh, this strategy will help? Well the the aim is to create 1.6 million jobs uh, and uh, and increase uh, the private sector jobs by by two times to 3.1 uh, million. So job is is really high on on the on the government agenda, and uh, this is a very ambitious program. Uh, I mean, they've signed lots of deals, but how many of them are going to materialize, and how many of them uh, uh, will will translate into actual execution? It's is yet to be seen, and there's a there's a long uh, time frame about uh, 11, 12 years uh, till 2030. So. Uh, it's, it's yet to be seen uh, how much of this is, is going to be materialized, but there is a lot of enthusiasm for uh, from uh, uh, international investors as well. There so, is, uh, and and they were they and and they were very happy with with, with the deals that were presented. Uh, uh, I spoke to a, a few of uh, investors as well, and uh, and the government uh, uh, officials were, were also very very enthusiastic in in chasing people. I was wearing a media badge, but thrice I was. Uh, I was approached by by officials on the ground, and they they asked me whether I was an investor and uh, and which sectors would I want to invest. So you can uh, imagine the enthusiasm from the both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very very large numbers, as you say, and uh, as you say, we'll we'll uh, wait to see uh, what precisely materializes over the next few years. Um, Samad uh, on the line. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon, and Jennifer, thank you for your time also. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. The global hospitality industry is undergoing what might be described as something of a revolution. Against this backdrop, earlier this week, I spoke to Simon Allison, the chairman of Hoftel, the International Hotel Owners Alliance that counts among its big-name members numerous regional players who, alongside international operators, are responsible for many billions of dollars worth of hospitality real estate. 
Now, you are chairman of Hoftel, uh, which is the um, uh, Multinational Hotel Owners Alliance, um, uh, and uh, the group is behind the uh, the Gulf and Indian Ocean Hotel Investors Summit um, uh, on the 4th to the 5th of February. Um, could you just, for, for those who don't know, give us a brief outline of, of Hoftel and uh, and indeed what the summit is uh, is targeted at doing? Sure. So Hoftel is essentially a global network or alliance of hotel real estate investors and some service department investors. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's basically those groups of many different sorts which own the underlying real estate, which hotel management companies or brands put their names on. Uh, We have members all over the world. We have about 82, 83 of them who have about $100 billion of hotel real estate. And Having been to many, many hotel investment conferences over the years, uh, I thought it might be good to have one that really did revolve around the people who put in most of the money, which is the owners. And so we launched GEARHIS in 2016, and this will be our fourth one coming up on the 4th and 5th of February. Okay. And um, who, what names might we, we have heard of here who are, who are involved in, uh, with Hoftel? I mean, there's, there's some of the, the big global names, so people like Blackstone and Adia, um, in the region, it's companies like Majid Al Futaim, Abu Dhabi National Hotels, Aldar, the first group, SBK Holding, Dubai Properties, Rack National Hotels, etc. So mm-hmm. a lot of the substantial owners in the region are involved in it. Mm-hmm. And of course, the summit comes at um, um, quite a challenging time for for Gulf and Indian Ocean uh, market. Really, um, you know, we've got the continuing rise of online travel agents, um, the spread of home sharing and service departments such as Airbnb. Um, you know, to a certain extent, consolidation of brands um, and, of course, ever-increasing supply. Um, how, how do you think uh, the outlook for this year is playing out regarding um, the challenges for the, for the market in the Gulf and the Indian Ocean? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think I recently in an article described this year as the storm before the calm. I think the long-term potential of the region is, is pretty good. You've got new attractions. You've got better airports coming. There's a lot going on. But this year is going to be a difficult year for sure. Uh, you do have enormous supply increases, uh, particularly in Dubai and in Saudi, but also markets like Muscat, the, the significant supply coming into the region. And it's almost inevitable just on a mathematical basis that when you're adding 20 or 30 or 40 percent supply into a city, uh, that city is going to suffer because there's simply more hotels grabbing the same number of visitors. Now, over time, as the city gets, you know, gets its publicity out there, the number of visitors rise as well. But there's always a gap there uh, when you have a big supply surge. And so I do think 2019 and possibly 2021 after Expo will both be pretty difficult years. Mm-hmm. And of course, the region uh, is seeing a huge amount of, of uh, development investment. I mean, looking at Bahrain, around, what, $32 billion worth um, in the kingdom with um, 10 billion directly connected to tourism. Um, but as you say, that that uh, is is linked in with airport modernization, um, plus, of course, you know, the, the growth of new resorts and retail destinations. Um, do you see as significant the the what appears to be a shift from ultra luxury and, and luxury high end offerings to a more mid market um uh, range of, of offerings uh, as being um, significantly important to, to the future growth within this region of the market? I think, yes, you are, you are going to see a demand. I mean, generally, there's a demand for new products, 
the, the region has been oversupplied at the top end. Uh, what you're getting effectively is top end hotels increasingly selling at mid market prices. So it makes far more sense to use your money to build a mid market hotel uh, into those sectors to attract a new kind of client. Uh, you're also getting, of course, more service departments, more the hostels will probably come in as they are in other parts of the world. So you do have a, a demand, I think, among the clients for new types of property. And I think one of the things that's driving this is that, and, and not necessarily in the UAE yet, but, but in, in other markets, you're seeing where you have a lot of supply from the service, uh, from the shared economy, uh, from apartments and private residences. Um, hotels have to compete somehow, and they can't compete on size of room because a hotel room will rarely be bigger than a private apartment. So they're tending now to compete either on amenities Obviously, you've got meeting rooms and restaurants and so on, but also, I think, on a sense of community. And a lot of the newer mid-scale brands that are coming in into the world generally are quite buzzy, like 25 Hours or Citizen M, and they're offering kind of a feeling of community, which, again, a private residence can't compete with. And I think that's why you're seeing a change uh, in a lot of the more established hotels as well to try and move their lobbies uh, in the mid-scale hotels to be much more kind of communal and buzzy and have a, have a sense of place and a sense of atmosphere. And is, is, that, um, is that shift being, uh, is it most noticeable in this region, do you think? Or, or is, it, is it a kind of, is it riding a wave from, from perhaps um, other markets? I think... Um, not really in this region. Uh, I think it's, it's still to come. Uh, a lot of Middle Eastern hotelier owners have been very keen to go with the big established brands that they know. One of the problems they're facing, as you mentioned at the beginning, is that brands are consolidating. Mm. And so you might sign up with brand X to compete with brand Y across the road, and then you suddenly find that brand X has bought brand Y, and you've got both hotels under the same reservation system that are supposed to be competing with each other. And a number of owners have found that and found it to be quite uncomfortable. So I think there is a demand now from a lot of owners to get new brands or to, to give a chance to smaller niche companies, whether they're local or whether they're international, uh, to have a different offering uh, and perhaps an offering that isn't part of this massive consolidation. So I, I don't think the kind of the, the lifestyle trend has yet taken off in the region, but I, I think that that and more general mid-scale will be what we're seeing more of in the coming years. Mm -hmm. Of course, I mean, the region is becoming known for, for its more innovative um, resort projects. We've, we've got the Red Sea Islands planned for the, uh, the Saudi Arabian coast. Um, and of course, RAK, Ras Al Khaimah, um, has very much for, for quite, you know, for some time now, kind of pitched itself as, a, as an adventure um, uh, adventure resort uh, offering in, in, in several ways, you know, with the, the longest zip line in the world, etc. Um, do you think uh, outside of the main hubs of, of, of Abu Dhabi and Dubai, where perhaps the demand for, um, for business uh, travelers is not so high, that, uh, that, that that will be an increasing trend um, in, in, uh, in those kind of areas? Yes, I, I do. I mean, I think what's interesting, actually, if you look at the region at the moment, especially the UAE, is that the leisure tourism is holding up really quite well. And the business tourism, especially government contract related tourism, has been weak. Uh, and obviously, the oil industry is having its ups and downs as well. So you are seeing, um, interesting, you're seeing a lot of the resort areas, whether it's the upscale hotels on the Palm or hotels on Yas and Sadiat uh, or hotels on the beach in Rack, they're all doing pretty well. And, um, you know, I think the, the interesting thing about what the UAE is doing is that each emirate is pursuing its own niche. 
and you could comfortably have a, hol- a holiday where you spend some time in Abu Dhabi, some time in Dubai, some time in Iraq, possibly even some time in Sharjah, and so on and mm-hmm. so on, and have a slightly different experience each time. Now, I suspect some of the lateral transport links would have to improve a little bit so people aren't taking two, three-hour taxi rides. Mm. But a kind of a multi-center holiday in the region is certainly possible, and I think that will become a lot more attractive over the years, particularly, as I say, if each emirate keeps a particular offering that's slightly differentiated from the others. Mm-hmm. Um, regarding online travel agents, what, what, how, how has that impacted the traditional market, do you think, and, and what responses are the the traditional brands um, putting in place to to either capitalize on that or or to deflect from potential challenge? It's very interesting. I mean, the online travel agents effectively, to some extent, replaced wholesalers, i.e. tour operators. And although their commissions can be enormous, the OTAs, and they're usually between 12 and 20%, depending on how, how strongly you can negotiate with them, um, they're still cheaper for a lot of uh, owners than, than paying the old tour operators. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, uh, compared to getting your booking direct from the brand or direct on your own website or direct from a phone call, uh, it is an expensive way of getting business, but it's a very effective one. So in the end, what's happened is everybody has fallen in behind the OTAs. Now, the problem the industry has is a structural one, which is you have two major global OTA companies, probably 10 to 15 substantial global hotel brand companies, Mm -hmm. and another, well, many tens of smaller ones. But in ownership in the world, you have probably hundreds of thousands of owners. So the concentration power is very much with the OTAs. If they unplug you, uh, for many hotels, that's a death sentence. So they really do have most of the power. The brands tried at one point to sort of compete with them, and they're still trying in some ways to lure customers onto their own websites rather than going through the OTAs. But the problem for a lot of owners is they're doing that by discounting the rate by 5 or 10% to their core client base, to their loyalty card holders. So that's great for the brand because it generates the brand fees for bookings going through their website, but it isn't quite so good for the owner because they're essentially discounting their their core business. Mm. And I think the owners are scratching their heads as to how to team up with the brands to, to, to push back and aren't really finding an answer. And I think many owners will be looking perhaps more to do things with the OTAs directly. Mm-hmm. Do you think um, regarding that, the uh, OTAs, and particularly um, the home sharing and service department segment, um, do you think that the established hotel brands um, may be considering how to perhaps um, take advantage of the growth of that segment, um, perhaps uh, looking to to purchase private um, private dwellings and to use them primarily as, if you like, um, small uh, you know one two room hotels. Is, is is that something that's on the agenda at all? I think what is on the agenda is a, a coming together of the sharing economy, the OTAs and the brands. So yes, I mean the trend you're talking about. I don't think the brands would ever be buying units to mm. put in, but they are beginning to take private homes. Uh, we know, for example, that people like uh, Accor have been buying into home sharing platforms. What I think has been the most significant move in this area has been Marriott teaming up with a company called Hostmaker and taking some of their best homes and actually putting them under the tribute portfolio collection that Marriott has. 
So you effectively have a Marriott brand sitting on a private residence. Mm -hmm. um, and that, of course, is an interesting question for the owners who've spent a lot of money investing in hotels that the brands have stipulated have to be built in a certain way and often at a significant cost. Uh, and they suddenly find themselves competing with private homes, which may be very nice, but won't have had to go through that process. Um, you've also got, of course, people like Airbnb as a sharing economy firm offering budget hotel or not budget boutique hotel rooms into the market, uh, and they have a lower commission than the OTAs. And you have some of the brands have even tried to become OTAs themselves, although without much success. So you're definitely getting an overlapping among those sectors, but all, frankly, to their benefit and not really to the benefit of the underlying real estate investor. Talking of that overlapping, it, it, it might seem to, to um, you know, an outsider of the, the um, industry like myself, but why wouldn't a Marriott or an Accor just build their own site like uh, like an OTA or, or, or their own brand of Airbnb and just, just do their own online stuff? Why is it that, the, that these established um, players have, seem to have such a grip on, the, on, the, on that aspect of the industry? One of, one of the changes that the hotel industry has seen over really 20, 25, 30 years has been that the brand companies have, have got out of real estate. And the reason for that is, 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 well, it's simple, but it's really twofold. Firstly, that the stock markets don't really know how to value hotel management companies that also have real estate, because the value of the real estate, of course, is, is, is increasing quietly every year, but doesn't get reflected in their profit and loss accounts. So, so the stock market doesn't really value them properly. Equally, a lot of those management companies found that there were individual investors or sovereign funds or REITs who would pay far more for their real estate than it was being valued at on their books. So they, they got a really nice pop from selling, selling off the real estate and giving big dividends back to their, their investors. So essentially, there are very few hotel management companies now that have or want to have large real estate portfolios. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, you know, I remember at last year's GEOHIS, we asked one of the brands whether they, one of, sorry, one of the OTAs, whether they might ever go into owning real estate, and they didn't want to answer that. So it is possible that one day Booking.com or Expedia or Airbnb might decide they want to own their own portfolio. And would, uh, that, that can't be ruled out. I think. Yeah. Would, would that make sense from your, your point of view? Do you think that would be uh, a logical or, or you know, um, the, the next way to it, take it for them? It's a tough one because, I mean, for Airbnb, it doesn't really, there's nothing really the brands can do to hit back at that. And, you know, they, they, they might be able to team up with some developers. I, I remember meeting one developer in Chicago who had built, I think, three residential towers, and one of the three was specifically designed for the sharing economy specifically designed effectively for short-term rental. So, you know, there are alliances I think they could do. For the OTAs, it's a little bit harder because obviously their money comes from dealing with branded hotels, and they'd need to be very sure of themselves if they set up another brand because then all the, the branded hotels would say, well, hang on, you're bound to give your brand preference on your site. Uh, how do you expect us to pay big commissions when you're competing with us yourselves? Mm. And I don't think they've quite got to grips with how they'd solve that. The the economy in this uh, region, and particularly the UAE, is is in a pretty healthy state and looking very healthy for the forthcoming year or two years. Um, that's not necessarily the case in other other regions um, with economies uh, slowing. Um, how How does that manifest itself in uh, the impact on, on the uh, hospitality industry elsewhere? are a very cyclical industry so a weak economy generally means weaker demand uh, and you are going to go through phases when demand slows down now 
The other trend that cuts across that is that there's usually somewhere that's booming when somewhere else is depressed. And if you're a hotel market that can take advantage of that booming economy, you will simply, not simply, it's quite complicated, but you will in the end shift your guest mix or try and shift your guest mix to where the booming economy has been. So in Southeast Asia, for example, particularly after the 0809 global recession, uh, they turned a lot more of their attention to the Chinese and Indian outbound markets, and they make up a very significant proportion of guests in most Southeast Asian hotels. They aren't coming in anything like those numbers to the Middle East, but for sure, sooner or later, they will be. And that will mean the, the importance of, for example, European guests, Russian guests might, might go down. There's also, in the longer run, a massive market to come out of Africa. So as long as there's one part of the world that can reach you within a reasonable flight time that isn't in recession, you can usually fill your rooms. Talking of Africa, is is it, um, as it you know might appear again to an outsider such as myself, that the obvious area for for uh, growth in the industry would be somewhere like south africa given it's you know the, the industrialized center um, of the continent is is that yes, necessarily I mean, I the went case to a conference recently where they were pointing out that the population of africa by the end of the century will probably be close to that of asia so in the longer term for sure africa is a is a very exciting market um, and I think that's happening everywhere. I mean, you've obviously got the, the bigger economies, South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, etc., mm -hmm. uh, which are in many ways leading the charge. Uh, but you do have um, a lot of interest in the African markets. The big brands are piling in. Uh, Accor's just set up a billion dollar fund or fund of potentially a billion dollars with a, with, a, with a regional investor to try and exploit Africa. Marriott, of course, bought Pratia, the big South African management company. Uh, as with all these markets that are still relatively young, you do tend to have a lot more excitement than reality. So although a lot of projects are talked about, they don't all open or they get quite delayed. But there is no doubt that if you're taking a 20, 30, 40 year view, Africa is a very exciting market indeed. And that's why our conference also covers East Africa and the Indian Ocean Islands, because we think that's a, a logical place for UAE and GCC money to go. Mm -hmm. um Finally, uh, Simon, obviously uh, you'll be here for the uh, event. Um, where, where, where do you, given the choice, where do you uh, go when you're not working, as it were? When I'm on holiday, mm. <laughs> effectively. Yes, more or less. Yeah. Um, well, uh, my wife's originally from Thailand, so we uh, we do spend every winter in Thailand, uh. and uh, in the summer we will head around to Europe, but. Um, of course, we're spending quite a lot of time in the region, so we've also had some, some very good leisure time in, in Abu Dhabi, in Dubai, in Amman. Um, but, um, yeah, we, we tend to travel around and try and change it a bit every year. Yeah, yeah, quite right too. Okay, Simon, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Many thanks to Simon Allison for that insight, and to Jennifer Niana and Samad Khan for the inside story on ADNOC and Saudi Arabia's new industrial strategy. Thanks also to our producer, Kevin Jeffers. My name's Chris Nelson, and that was the Business Extra podcast. Join us again next week.